You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Welcome to Inside Healthcare presented by NCQA. I'm Alec Bose and we are sitting down today with Paul Gianfrido, President and CEO of the Mental Health America. Paul had a storied career serving in leadership roles for nonprofits in several states, a former Connecticut state legislature, consultant, speaker, and writer. He also was appointed to a four-year term on the National Advisory Council to the SAMHSA Center for Mental Health Services. Paul, thanks for being with us here today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I sort of wanted to start the conversation about um, our mental health discussion by sort of getting a gauge on how you think mental health is uh going or how uh, the general state of behavioral health care is in this country compared to other developed nations. Is, is it better, worse? What are we looking at? Well, the first thing is in absolute terms, it's not good enough. Too few people, in fact, fewer than half uh, who need access to care can get access to care in the United States. So that's not good. And in a lot of the rest of the world, it's also not good. But compared to some of the, the world, the Far East, for example, I think we're doing a little better compared to other parts of the world, like Australia, we're doing a little worse uh, compared to Europe. I think we do better than Southern Europe, maybe a little worse than the Northern parts of Europe, but I think we all have a long way to go. What do you think, for those issues that you see where we could be doing a little better, Where do you what do you think those issues are? Where do you think they stem from? And why do you think we've seen them develop over the past few years? Well, I think the major issues that we've got is that we don't really take mental illness seriously enough in kids. When half of mental illness is emerging by the age of 14, uh, three quarters by the age of 25, this makes serious mental illness a childhood disease for the most part. But uh, those of us who are in my generation of policymakers back in the 1980s, though, uh, when we started closing those state hospitals and looking at the kinds of services that we needed to provide, we really were thinking in terms of adults. And even though we haven't done a very good job of providing adult mental health services in this country either, we really needed to understand that the people coming out of the state hospitals may have been adults, but the people who were going into those state mental health systems were kids. And because we didn't build a good system of services, supports, and care for our kids, uh, we really lost an opportunity to affect an entire generation. And in fact, uh, we ended up not just deinstitutionalizing people back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, for this generation of young adults, we ended up reinstitutionalizing them in institutions we call county jails and state prisons. So sort of going off of that point, you mentioned that um, there we sort of failed this generation um, as it relates to institutionalizing and proper care. And, you know, instead of funding those proper institutions we funded, um, we funded county jails instead. And so, you know, you talk a little a lot about, you know, the growing suicide issue on your blog is something that we actually talked about um uh, in NCQA for a little bit. Um, and so what do you think is contributing to that um, specifically in terms of the issues you just uh, brought up? And is there any way to reverse that trend? Yeah, when we think about something uh, as tragic as suicide and other bad outcomes, even of serious mental illnesses, uh, what we need to remember is that suicidal ideation, thinking about suicide, is not an early stage indicator of potential suicide. It's actually a very late stage indicator 
uh, we have an online screening tool uh, set on our, our Mental Health America uh, website. And of the people who take the PHQ-9, which is the most common depression screening test in America, and about 2 million people have taken it, the eighth most frequently answered question in the affirmative on the PHQ-9 is the suicidal ideation question. So what do people who have depression really feel? And what do kids talk about? It's not the behavioral stuff, which is the first things we often notice with a child and the first thing we relate to or respond to. Um, it's really internalizing, not externalizing factors. So um, if we paid more attention to children who were having difficulty sleeping, if we paid more attention to children who are having difficulty sleeping and having attention problems, um, difficulty with tension, sleeping, and forming friendships, attention, sleeping, forming friendships, playing by the rules, attention, sleeping, forming friendships, playing by the rules, withdrawing, eating improperly, uh, not eating well. If we looked at all of those things as a constellation of factors, we would be finding a lot of the kids that we need to be focusing in on long before they have suicidal thinking. And that's what we should be doing for, for early identification and early intervention in this country. And you, you mentioned stage four, something that you talk about a lot in Mental Health America. It's something um, we agree with, we can get behind. And so you mentioned that suicide is one of those stage four events. In your response, you mentioned that um, these stage four events, uh, we shouldn't be waiting for these stage four events. You know, there are other things that happen before. What are those stage one, stage two events, or what are those uh, symptoms that, or uh, causes, external causes or internal causes? I mean, you mentioned some of the internal causes in your previous response. Um, but what are some of those that lead to depression that may, we may not see before that stage four event? Yeah, let, let me clarify first by just uh, talking about what it is I mean when I talk about stage four. Um, as a matter of public policy in this country for pretty much at least the last century, uh, we have applied a danger to self or other standard as a trigger to treatment. And this has made mental health conditions the only chronic diseases in America that we wait till stage four to treat, and then often inappropriately through incarceration. So when I talk about what we need to do um, by applying less behavioral danger to self or others and more clinical standards, like looking at people withdrawing, we need to understand the same things the public health people have been trying to tell us about all chronic disease in America, that the roots of a lot of chronic disease in America is in the social determinants uh, of health and behavioral health. It's in poverty. It's in unsafe environments in which people live. It's exposure to violence. It's exposure to um, adults who abuse substances. It's those kinds of external factors when coupled with the kinds of internal factors that I mentioned before. A kid who just naturally withdraws, has difficulty forming friendships, maybe has trouble sleeping, has tough eating habits, doesn't get the right amount of exercise. Um, those kinds of things put together a ticket to more serious mental health problems. If we focused on that combination of things, that's early identification, early intervention. That's catching kids at stage one and stage two, adults too. And that's moving people most effectively along pathways to integrated services like NCQA works on and recovery-oriented services, which is the whole point of quality in healthcare delivery. Switching gears just a, just a little bit. Um, so we talked, a little, we've been talking about um, sort of the internal, well, I guess not internal, but we've been talking about mental behavioral health or uh, 
depression and things of that nature, but wanted to switch uh, topics to sort of more of the substance and behavioral health on that side, the opioids, um, uh, alcohol, drugs, and things like that. What do you think from a, not just a mental health perspective, but from a social determinants perspective, what do you think can contribute to that substance abuse and what uh, sort of factors uh come into play when somebody is is maybe not choosing but maybe is engaging in substance abuse more than average well i think the first thing that we need to think about here is you know why does somebody take tylenol well they take tylenol because it relieves pain you know why does somebody take an opioid they take opioid because it relieves pain um the reason why people take drugs, the reason why people take pharmaceuticals is different from the public policy that we've built around them. Uh, and so what I think we need to recognize and understand is that we can have all kinds of um, drug policy in the country that attempts to uh, find people earlier, identify behavioral health issues, and address those uh, and identify those who might be you know, more likely to become addicted to certain substances or we can understand and recognize that the reason why a lot of people are taking medications, self-medicating, is because they've got forms of pain that we're simply not addressing. They may be physical pain, like a backache, um, maybe more of a psychological pain that somebody's fighting and trying to use a substance that ought to be a controlled substance to address. The problem we've got, I think, in this country is we've tended to believe, as a matter of public policy, that you know, marijuana, for example, is a gateway drug to opioid dependence. Well, there's not a whole lot of evidence for that. And why not alcohol as a gateway drug? You know, why not Tylenol? It's because that's the first thing our kids get as a drug, and it makes them feel better as a gateway drug. I think that we need to just back all this up a whole lot and recognize that if we're going to try to address all of these things, this condition early on, we've got to recognize that while some people will progress with mental illness to stage four, with opioid uh, use to opioid dependence, many, many people, vast majority of people are taking uh, these kinds of drugs for different reasons. And unless we under address those underlying causes, the underlying reason, unless, for example, you address the pain, whether it's physical or psychological, people are still going to try to self-medicate or they're going to go and get a prescribed medication and use it excessively or inappropriately. You bring up a good point, and it's actually something I didn't have here. Um, but you bring up something about the people who are, um, you know, doing drugs or doing um, a substance. They're doing it to feel better. They're doing it because something hurts, because there's pain. And I think, you know, that you bring up a good point about anybody who is dealing with some sort of behavioral health issue and the stigma that comes along with that person. Um, how do you think... Um, and or why do you think that stigma is placed on these individuals by society and what can we do sort of in broad terms to sort of and not just as individuals but as a society what can we do to reverse that you know if you think somebody as a premise is a danger to themselves or to somebody else because that's what you've been told about somebody who has schizophrenia let's say or somebody who's got serious bipolar disorder or somebody with depression who you know, may have had suicidal ideation, then you start from being a, a premise of nervousness and anxiety about dealing with them. But if you start from the premise that what we're all looking for is a hopeful future, we're all looking to feel better if we otherwise feel worse, and we understand that there's no reason to stigmatize some who are simply seeking to feel better, um, and 
whereas for others who are seeking to feel better who might have a different chronic condition, that, that's okay, then I think we start normalizing the conversation, normalizing discussion, getting rid of both the stigma and, even more importantly, the discrimination. I mean, we haven't effectively built a system of integrated health care in the United States. We've built these two systems of, of health care, one system which treats all other physical health, and then one system, a different system, which has primarily been state-focused, that's treated mental health and uh, substance um, abuse. And what we've done is create two separate unequal systems that have effectively discriminated against people who are then stigmatized because they're discriminated against and because when we wait so long to treat them, by then they're acting different and looking different and uh, and feeling different from anything to which anybody else can relate. And again, you are you're sort of hitting all the points that <laughs> I was uh, planning to ask. And so you so you mentioned uh, you know integrating um, uh, uh, integrating that into primary health. We have two different systems, and you know we strongly believe at NCQA that that's that just sort of makes sense integrating behavioral health care into a primary care setting and you alluded to it but can you speak a little bit more to how far something like that can go towards you know shaping and uh, really improving behavioral health care as a whole yeah i mean ncqa's whole purpose is to focus on quality and as you know you can't have quality primary care unless it's fully integrated not really And the reality is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends that everybody over the age of 11 should have a regular mental health screen. And for kids, that should be as common as screening for vision and hearing. For adults, that should be as common as screening for blood pressure. And it's not being done. Uh, If it were being done, that's the first step toward integrating whole health into a primary care visit, whether it's at a pediatrician's office for a kid or whether it's just an adult primary care provider uh, for a grown-up. And that's what we need to do because you just can't treat a whole person with just half a record, I often say. You can't look at just one side of a person and then figure out how to keep them along a pathway to health and pathway to recovery if they've got some kind of a, a, a local, an acute condition or a chronic condition. You've got to be looking at the whole person all the time. And so I think the um, way to move toward on a fully integrated system is to begin in primary care. And it's to begin in schools with kids when they're doing screening for other conditions, just screen for everything. And in primary care, just screen for everything uh, that could be debilitating down the road. Because, you know, in costs, dollar costs, and in years of life lost, all mental health conditions versus all cancers, uh, they look pretty similar year in and year out in terms of what they cost the the healthcare delivery system purely and what they cost in years of life loss. So uh, we really need to be doing the same kinds of strategies uh, with mental health conditions starting in primary care that we do with cancer, that we do with heart disease, that we do with diabetes and other kinds of chronic conditions. Otherwise, we're just never going to be uh, treating these whole people. And we're going to continue to get not just worse results with people with primary behavioral health conditions, you're going to get worse results with people who are trying to live with and survive through cancer or heart disease or diabetes or chronic pain. That's a really good point because you don't really think about um, the other mental or the other health issues that come from dealing with 
mental health issues. You don't think about the attitudes that come with dealing with cancer if you're depressed. You don't really think about those things. And that's something I haven't thought about either, admittedly. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things that when you think about that, people say, well, I've got cancer and I am depressed. People say, well, of course you're depressed, you've got cancer. Um, but that's not really true. It's not if you solve the problem of the cancer, the depression is going to go away. For most people, I would say for most, for a great number of people, they're dealing with both clinical depression and clinical cancer. And if the cancer is cured, the depression doesn't go away. Any more than the depression is cured, the cancer's not going away. To move to recovery, you've got to be managing, not even thinking about curing, but managing for the most part, both the cancer and the depression. So we talked a lot about, you know, where the health, uh, behavioral health care has come, um, when, what we're trying to do to improve it now. Um, but, you know, we, we're always looking towards the future. And in uh, the improvement business, we're always looking to see what's the next big thing in healthcare, where's the next uh, step. And right now we see a lot of strides in technology. I don't know if you've heard, you know, the HIMSS conference is going on right now. And so a lot of, uh, you know, development and new uh, tactics are being discussed. And in behavioral health care, you know, it, it's kind of difficult to see where the next step is. So, you know, as the president here, <laughs> what would you say is the next big moonshot or the next big uh, uh, thing that we could see or where or, or generally where could healthcare? Yeah, be oh, it, it's interesting because it may be in a way the next little thing that will become a big thing. And there's, there's one thing that NCQA, of course, has been working on for some time. Uh, which is the idea of the what I'll call the certification of quality within a healthcare delivery system environment, where somebody can get you know through NCQA a seal of approval, apply for this, and say what we are doing meets a certain standard. And we're doing the same thing at Mental Health America with workplace behavioral health, where uh, workplace mental health programs we think again. Um, ought to be held to some standard that we're going to offer to people and say, if you do all these things, this is a good standard. And, uh, and we'll give you an MHA seal of approval for, for meeting this standard. So these may be, to a lot of people, not the moonshot type thing. These are little things. Um, but these kinds of little things can become pervasive more quickly in society because it doesn't matter whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, whether you're a big provider or a small business. Um, you can participate, you can engage, and you can understand what it is I need to provide, I need to do in order to achieve, in, in your instance, quality overall in, in integration of health services for us, quality in terms of the workplace mental health services you may be providing to the employees and to the community. And I think that's the ticket because the world we live in is a much more democratic one than it used to be. And you've got to infuse this stuff way more democratically throughout the entire environment all at once uh, than to hold up that one standard of the perfect hospital that might have been held up 50 years ago, 100 years ago, when everybody wanted to go to that one hospital because they were the best in the country. Or everybody wants to work for that one employer because they're the best in the country at providing these kinds of supports and services. Our world doesn't work that way anymore when I say it's more democratic. Now it's how do you get 1,000 or 5,000 providers to do this? How do you get 5,000 companies to do this and to, to understand what their role is and their ability to do this? So I think that's where we're both headed. I think we both have a similar idea in understanding that there's a way to make this real to the little guy who may be a sole practitioner as well as to the big 
you know, multi-dimensional system, and we can do the both at the same time. The biggest innovations can come through the smallest changes. And I think, you know, when we have those small sort of incremental changes, even if they are small, if we get enough people doing them, it can make a huge difference. And I definitely agree with you there. Um, but was there anything else that you want to discuss that uh, I didn't touch on or that I didn't get to? I, I think that so much of the system of the future is going to be informed by the lived experience of people with mental health conditions. I think that the workforce, the health workforce of the future uh, is not going to include just traditional clinicians as part of care teams, but actually people with lived experience, we'll call them certified peer specialists as part of clinical care teams. And I think the world at large uh, is going to be informed increasingly from what we're seeing by the willingness of young people and younger people to engage with one another and to insist that they get the kinds of services and supports that they need when they need them. So instead of a world that's going to be defined by us creating more institutions and more you know, trained psychiatrists and psychologists to address shortage of traditional professionals and to get those infused in all the 50% of counties that don't have behavioral health services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, instead of that world happening, I think the world that's going to unfold is a world that's going to be determined by the people living in those counties who have got needs and say, I've got needs in four areas. I need more information than I've been able to get before. And we've got this wonderful thing called the World Wide Web that allows us to get this information. And, and I want more connection to people like me, peers. And we've got these wonderful things like social media that allow us to connect to communities around the world and not just have a physical community anymore. And... Uh, for people who need referrals to treatment and services, we'll have better means of getting them to quality services because we'll have worked together to figure out what quality looks like in this area. And I think finally, for people who just want to be left alone but want to manage and maintain their own health and behavioral health and are looking for do-it-yourself do tools, we'll be able to provide those self-help tools to them too. So I think that's our future. Our future is in all four of those domains from the perspective of the individual um, with those needs themselves. And for us at Mental Health America, that's consistent with our founding because we were founded by Clifford Beers, a young man with lived experience who helped create the modern mental health advocacy movement in addition to creating our organization. But I think as you look forward and we look forward, um, that's really the, the world at, at large. You know, 20 years ago, nobody thought about quality really in terms of what the patient defined, the individual defined as what their wants and desires were. We thought quality was going to be about, do we cure them or do we get them healthier for a longer period of time? Forgetting that, you know, what their goal for quality was might be entirely different. Like somebody actually listened to me and somebody actually involved me in making clinical care decisions about me and about my own care. So I, I think that more democratic world is the one we're living in, we'll continue to live in. And I like um, what you guys are doing, and I like what we're doing uh, to try to take advantage of that and to try to work with the reality uh, in which we're living. So we've been speaking with Paul Gianfrido, President and CEO of Mental Health America. I'm Alec Bose with Inside Healthcare, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.